We want to take a moment now to dismiss our children upstairs for our kids' crew worship time, so they're going to make their way to the front and follow our leadership upstairs today. While they're doing that, I want to encourage you to turn your Bible to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you'll notice in the back of the pew where you're seated this morning a blue hardback copy, and uh, we would encourage you to grab that, pull it out, turn to Mark chapter 1 if you need need it. There's a table of contents in the front of that Bible that will tell you what page you can find the Gospel of Mark on, and of course, we'll be there in just a moment. We started a sermon series last week through looking through the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling this The Gospel Changes Everything, because in the Gospel of Mark, we find this idea that the, the, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, now is the time to repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And even as we saw the connection with our lives, we understand that the time has come for us to, to repent and believe. The time has come for us to make Jesus the center of our lives. And as we do that, we understand rightly that the gospel changes everything. It changed everything about Mark and his life. It changed everything about Mark's story, everything about who he was and how he lived and what he did. And it changes us too. In fact, Romans says, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Meaning that it's in this story of Christ, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And trusting in him by faith. It's in trusting in that good news that we find the power of God come alive in our lives. And so as we study through the gospel of Mark, as we look at the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the whole point is to see that if we would live with the gospel at the center of our lives, that it has the power to change everything for us. And so we see in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, that Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. And as he does... He's going to reach out to these men who would become his disciples, the apostles as they were given this title. And so this morning I want us to look in Mark chapter 1 at the story of Jesus calling the first of his disciples. And then we're going to jump into Mark chapter 2 and we're going to look at a place where he calls another disciple. And then ultimately in Mark chapter 3, the place where Jesus calls the twelve and he names them apostles, and then the mission that he gives them. And the whole point of the study this morning as we're looking at Jesus' calling of his disciples is to understand that when Jesus calls us, that he calls us with a, a really the similar commission that he gave to his disciples, and that is simply follow me. Let's read together Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. In other words, they were doing what fishermen do, right? They were fishing. Jesus passed along the sea, and he saw some fishermen fishing. They were doing their job. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Much has been said about this call that Jesus puts on the life of his disciples. But the point that I want us to see in this today is that Jesus takes what they know, he takes what they understood, and he gives it a meaning 
that goes so much beyond just their vocation. These were guys who were fishermen, right? And yet Jesus says, I want to make you fishers of men. I want to give your life a purpose like you've never known. I want to, I want to give you a task that's greater than just staying busy every day. I want to give you something to do that is far more significant than just making ends meet and surviving. And so Jesus gives them this call, follow me. And then these words in verse 18, which I pointed out last week, are significant. No less than seven times in chapter 1 of Mark, we see the word immediately. Immediately this happened. And immediately these things happened. And here it is again, Mark 1.18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, let's jump to chapter 2. You see the, the, uh, the passage on the back side of your bulletin with the notes there. Chapter 2, verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then, now let's jump ahead to chapter 3, also in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those who he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, and now this is an interesting name, right? Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. How would you like that to be your name, right? I mean, with Oklahoma City Thunder, maybe we, we would like that, right? We want the, the sons of thunder. But essentially, Jesus nicknames these guys the sons of thunder. What a, what a, you know, I imagine that they got that tattooed on their arms, right? So that everybody else would know that's the sons of thunder. Maybe not, but it's fun to think of. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. This is a different James, right? And Thaddeus. And Simon, again, a different Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so what we have here is that Jesus has called his disciples. He's called them. And what is the call that he gives them? When, when, he, when he would appear to them, as he would find them along the way, living life, doing their job, mending their nets, collecting taxes, fishing by the sea. Jesus would say to them, follow me. That was his call that he extends to his disciples. And so with those simple words, follow me, Jesus ushers in a change that literally would turn the world upside down. Because when we look at this list of disciples in Mark chapter 3, 
and we look at the names that are listed here, here's what we know to be true. Now, if we can factor out Judas Iscariot, we know, because of his role in, in Jesus' later story, we, we know that Judas betrayed Jesus. Of course, it points to that even here. But when you take the other names of these men, essentially what happened is that after Jesus' death and his resurrection, and then following a, a period of time on this earth, and then with his ascension, these same men went to work with the task that they were given by Jesus, their master, as the disciples, as the followers. They went to work doing the things that Jesus had taught them. And ultimately, you and I are here today because of them. And Christians today are gathered around our world, right? Hundreds of millions of believers today gathered across the globe and the work of the gospel still being done and and the church is growing and people are being won to Jesus and lives are being changed because these men followed the call that Jesus put on their life and they did the work that he gave them. These were simple men. We know a little bit about their story. But filled with the power of the Spirit, and living the life that Jesus called them to, they were able to turn the world upside down. And I believe that we can do the same today if we will live with the same boldness and the same sense of of, of understanding of who we are called to be, not just what we are called to do. That'll be important as we go through this, but literally our identity of who we are called to be as followers of Christ. And so let's dig in uh, to, to see what that looks like. W- what we have here essentially is this call of Jesus, follow me. And I want us to study this call. And, and as we look at this call today, and as we look through these passages, and, w- and we follow this thread of Jesus calling his disciples and then giving them a job to do, I want us to examine this call of Christ. And as we do that, we're going to see three things that, that are important about the call of Christ. Three requirements, if you will, that we get from the call of Christ from looking at Jesus extending the call to his disciples in these early chapters of Mark, in the early ministry of Jesus. The requirements of the call of Christ. And so the first requirement of the call of Christ that we're going to see is this, is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, when he calls you to to, to follow him, you have to leave your post, okay? You leave your post. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, of course. That, that needs some, some explanation here. Jesus appears to each of these disciples that we see, and what is it that he says to them? Follow me. And what is it that they do? It says that they followed him. Simple enough, right? Follow me. But notice, notice the, the key phrase, especially in chapter 1, And immediately, and immediately, they followed him. Here's the idea. Jesus extends a simple call to the disciples. There's no indication in the text or in any part of of, of tradition that Jesus said, follow me, and and he began to list off all the things that they were going to do. There's no indication that Jesus gave them any idea of what lie in store for them other than just this simple phrase, I'll make you fishers of men. 
you're fishermen, but I want to make you fishers of men. That's the only explanation that we really have recorded of, of Jesus' instruction, other than just simply follow me. And yet, immediately, the disciples followed him. Immediately, they left their nets, they left their, they left their lives, they left what they were doing to follow after him. They essentially, as I'm saying here, they left their post. Now, when I talk about leaving your post, I don't mean that we abandon responsibility. That's not at all what I, what I mean by this. It doesn't mean that we, that, we, uh, that we separate ourselves from the world and that we, uh, we live some kind of a monastic life, right? It's, it's not a call to... Uh, it, it's not a call to withdraw entirely from the world around us. But instead, here's the idea. Each one of us in life, we, we have our, our post, as I'm calling it. And you'll see that I picked this word because it fits well with the other words. I'm trying to make this memorable. But our post is, is what we do. It's our job. It's more than just what we do, though. It's who we are. It's what we think of ourselves. It's, it's our identity, and this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples when he calls them to follow after him. He is saying to them, not only do I want to change your profession, but I want to change your identity. So he says to fishermen, I want to make you fishers of men. Now, they were still going to be fishing, right? But it was a whole new way to look at not only what they did, but a whole new way to look at who they were in light of Jesus' call. And that's the point. When Jesus calls us, we better hold on because the world is getting ready to, to, to flip upside down for us in the same way that it did for the disciples. The, reality is going to be altered. Our lives are going to be forever changed. Jesus calls us to leave our post, meaning that we leave behind the old us, the old way of life, the old identity, the old way of doing things so that we might follow him and his call for our lives. Look in chapter 3 and look at verse 14. This is important. It's just a phrase, but it's, but it's significant. Chapter 3, verse 14. He appointed the twelve, okay? So he calls them up on the mountain with him. He appoints the twelve. But then notice the very next words. So that they might be with him. That was... That was their primary identity now. They were followers of Jesus. He appointed them as apostles so that they might be with him. No longer were they the same guys that they were before Jesus showed up on the scene. No longer were they the same disciples who were once fishermen and tax collectors and all the other things that they did. Now they are followers of Jesus first and foremost. And their, their job, if you will, was to be with him. Their identity was found no longer in the things but, that they did, but in him. See, the disciples couldn't follow Jesus and continue on with life as they knew it. Following Jesus was a life-altering, reality-shaping decision for the disciples. It's no less that way for us today. Sadly, there are many Christians, many, and, and maybe even many people who operate under the assumption that they are a Christian because they're playing the game, but they think that that's what it is. Christianity is about 
playing a game. You come to church, you do the things, you, you, you look the part, you sing the words, you learn the right things. But following Jesus is about having a new identity in him. It's about the fact that we're no longer who we once were. It's about the fact that Jesus changes everything for us, which is why we say in this that the gospel changes everything. Because if we're to follow Christ, we can't keep living the way that we were before. We can't go on with the status quo. We can't go on with life as we've always known it. Following Jesus will change us forever. When I think about my life and I think about some moments in my life that have changed me forever, no doubt the decision to follow Jesus when I was a, a, just a boy, I was six years old when I surrendered my life to Christ. And, and I would say with, without any hesitation, without any doubt, that is the greatest decision that I've ever made. And it's also the I could say the most significant decision I've ever made in my life. But you know, life is full of lots of other significant decisions as well. Life is full of lots of moments. There are consequences to the decisions that we make. And there are those moments in life that we can look back on and you can say, you know what? That changed me. Like that, that, that changed who I am. It changed how I see the world. It changed the way I act and it changed the way I do things. And no doubt for me in, in my life, I, I would point to becoming a father as one of those reality-shaping moments in life, right? I mean, it changed everything. Now, I've never been like, I've never been a, a, a crazy driver. I've never been one with a, a lead foot or that sort of thing. I mean, I've always been a fairly, uh, a fairly, I don't know, a good driver. I don't know what else to call it. You know, I, I've never been in an accident. I've, I, I've only gotten one ticket, and it's because I was 16 and, and a little dumb and, and just hot riding a little bit, you know. But I've been a pretty good driver. But it was funny, the day that we pulled away from the hospital after Pike had been born, and, and I was driving like uh, I was having a total senior moment, right? I'm in the middle lane, hands at 10 and 2, intentionally going about 5 to 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. And the conversation we were having on the way home from the hospital was literally this. I can't believe they just gave him to us. <laughs> and we just walked out the door, right? They put him in the back seat. What do we do? Do they know that we have no idea what we're doing, right? And with that, life was forever changed, right? It, be, it becomes not just something that you do, it becomes who you are. Being a father is not just, uh, it's not something that, you know, that I can just set aside. I can't just take it off. I, I can't just quit. It's, it, it literally affects who I am. It affects how I see everything in this world. And not only that, it, it really becomes the, the very defining thing, right? So when I meet people, I'm, I'm Pike's dad, or I'm Lindy Kate's dad or Emery's dad or Nixon's dad, right? I mean, it becomes, it defines who I am even. And there are those things in life that we, we look at and we say, you know what, that defines me in, in, a, in a way. It changed me. And the point is that following Jesus is always at the top of the list of things in life that should change us. And so, if you can't look in your life at a significant change that has taken place because of the decision to follow Jesus, then 
I would, I would encourage you, you've got to do some real soul searching then. And you need to wrestle with the question, have I really surrendered my life to him? Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't struggles. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle against the old self and the old thoughts and the old ways of doing things. I don't mean to say that, that it happens all at once with just this grand sweeping change. But in the life of the believer, there ought to be the struggle that there's the old self that wants to do battle with the new me that I am in Jesus. And, and there ought to be that, that striving within us to try to die to ourselves so that we might live for Christ. That's what I'm calling here, leaving your post. Meaning, the old you, in a sense, dies because there's a new you that is born again when you follow Jesus. You leave behind who you once were. You leave behind the old ways, the old way of life. So we leave, you must leave your post. Secondly, we see that the call of Christ requires that you count the cost. You count the cost. To be sure, there is always a cost when it comes to following Jesus. There is always a cost. Look in chapter 2, verse 16. Notice that the scribes of the Pharisees, they, they, they observed all that was going on, and they saw these things happening. And then what do they say? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's funny that, of course, they, tax collectors are in a in a category all their own here, right? There's sinners, and then there's tax collectors. They're even worse than sinners, right? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus hang out with those kind of people? Why does Jesus, right? And, and what we see is that it affects their reputation. It affected Jesus' reputation. Why does he hang out with you guys, basically? You, you ragtag bunch of sinners, you, you group of misfits. Why does Jesus hang out with you? But for the disciples, they had counted the cost. And so they were ready, no matter what others might say of them, no matter what opinion others might form because of who they were and because of who they were spending time with, they were ready to count the cost to follow Jesus. Now, this is true in life, right? That you... You and I, our lives are, are largely defined by the people that we spend time with, right? You, you look at your group of friends, you look at the, I mean, in, in many ways, these things define who we are, the people that we spend time with. So your family, your last name, for example, or your friends, maybe where you went to school, or if you didn't go, at least which school you cheer for, or, or, or maybe where you live, even in the community that you live or the street that you're on or your block or maybe it's the people that you work with and, and, and it's that group of people that, that you find that identity in, in your workplace, in your employment or your, in, in your company or those things. That our lives are largely defined by the people that we associate with. That can be both a good thing and a bad thing for us. But we see here that now Jesus is being defined by the people that he hung around. And for the disciples, when they said, why does Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? How were they to take that? That's us, right? 
Why does Jesus hang out with lowlifes like you guys? That's what they were asking, basically. And the disciples would have heard that, and they would have understood, we're the lowlifes. <laughs> we're the tax collectors and the sinners. We're the ones that they're talking about. But they had abandoned everything to follow Jesus. They had immediately, they left their nets. They left their, 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 their lives. They left it all behind. There was a cost to following Jesus. And think about this. First of all, it cost the disciples professionally to follow Jesus. It cost them professionally. They left their jobs to follow after Jesus. Jesus even said at one point, he says that, you know, that foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere that he might lay his head. Jesus admits I'm, I'm a wanderer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a homeless guy, but my purpose is not to build an earthly kingdom, but to build a heavenly kingdom. And the disciples made the decision to leave behind, to leave their posts, to follow him. They counted the cost, and it cost them professionally. No longer were they able to make a living doing the things that they once did, fishermen, tax collectors, and so on. It, so it cost them professionally. It cost them personally. It cost them personally to follow Jesus, meaning that things were said about them in, in a way that, that was an attack on who they were, right? Tax collectors and sinners. It, it, it cost them, it, so it cost them in that sense, but it also cost them just the time with their family, the time with their, with their loved ones. Now, we don't know a lot about a lot of the disciples, we don't know a lot about their personal lives outside of their call to follow Christ. But one that we do know about is that Peter, for example, has a mother-in-law, because later in the New Testament we learn about his mother-in-law. And so we know if he had a mother-in-law, then he had to have a wife. And if he's following after Jesus, then it stands to reason that he, he's not with his wife and his family, right? And so the idea is that, that the disciples left behind their lives to follow Jesus. Now, before you get out in front of that too far and, and say, well, so did, G- did Peter abandon his family? I, I, would, I would argue, based on everything we, else we know about, about the, the, just well, what, what God has instituted with the family, I would argue that Peter's wife was probably in tow with him that she probably left too and, and was following along in these things. But we don't know. That, that level of detail is not given to us by the New Testament. And at what point did he become married? Maybe it, was after, uh, maybe it was after all of it. We don't know exactly. We don't know. I don't think that Jesus said, hey, abandon your family in the sense of uh, you're, gonna, you're never going to be a husband and a father anymore. But he did say, that unless you are willing to follow me and leave behind everything, then you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So this is the idea. Their identity is no longer found primarily in the other things like it once was, but now their identity is first and foremost as a follower of Jesus, and that came at a personal cost to them. You see what I'm saying? Third, it cost them publicly. Now, what we know based on tradition, church tradition and early church history, is that the majority of the disciples were martyred, were killed for their faith in a public way. They were were killed such as to make a public example of them. 
that this is what happens when you follow after this Jesus. And yet every one of them, every one of them was willing to, to even die if necessary. We see in, in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is getting ready to make his way to the city of Jerusalem for the Passion Week and all those things that were going to unfold, Thomas says to Jesus, Jesus, we're ready to go and even to die with you. They counted the cost. And it came at a cost to them professionally. It came at a cost to them personally. It came at a cost to them publicly. And that they were killed. They were martyred for their faith. And yet every one of them were ready to, to pay the price. They were ready to, to do whatever it took. You know, increasingly in our culture today, we find that following Jesus comes with a cost. In fact, recently I've been reading a couple of books. I've been reading, um, this is a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. And in this book, it talks about, it talks about uh, just the, the decline of evangelical Christianity in our culture today. And one of the things that it, that it talks about, it argues using some solid research uh, from some reliable research groups. It talks about the fact that uh, in, in, our, in our culture today, in American culture today, that Christians, evangelical Christians who are actively living out their faith, make up somewhere at, at the most between 7 to 9% of our culture today. And they, and they offer sound numbers, good research behind that. Now, we tend to think of ourselves as a moral majority, but the point of the book is that the, major, the moral majority that that we assume is there and operating and, and, and kind of, you know, the, the backbone of our country is eroding and, and maybe in many ways already has eroded. Another book I've been reading is called Why They Stay. And it's, it's a survey, it's research and a survey done with people who grew up in the church and then stayed as opposed to those who stray. Why they stay. And it's asking questions and digging deeper using research to find out what were, what were the, the common denominators in the lives of those who stayed in the church. But one of the things that it talks about is the, the numbers of people. And the, the reality is that far more young people tend to grow up and then walk away from the church than those who grow up and stay in the church. And it's asking the question, of course, why? But here's the point. When you, when you look into our world today, blogs, Christian uh, Christian bloggers and, and, and books that are being written and all, everything is pointing to the fact that Christianity in America is on the decline. And yet, for us as believers, what are we to do with that? Well, two things that I would say are really important. First of all, this, only, this should only serve to, to sound the call for us, like we've looked at with our previous sermon series, that the clock is ticking that the time is now. There ought to be a sense of urgency about how we live. Our faith matters. And more than just that, what we do with our faith and how we live and the mission that we've been given matters. And so it is essential for us to take up the call to follow Christ and to live with a sense of urgency and boldness and passion every day of our lives. And secondly, I would say this, we have to operate with a new mindset that no longer do we just, can we just assume that there's more of us than there are them. And even if 
what we see in the, you know, the media or what we see in the culture, we feel like doesn't represent our Christian faith. No longer can we live under the assumption, well, in reality, there's just more of us than there are of them. And if we would ever just mobilize the way that we should, then, then we can win the day. Because all the research points to the fact that there aren't more of us than them. And that changes the way that we operate because we should see ourselves as operating in a, what many describe as a post-Christian culture. And, and what I'm, we, you can label it what you want to label it. The point is just this. As believers, what we do, how we live matters. But the point that I want us to see is it's not just about what we do. We need to understand that what we do flows from who we are. That is what is essential for us to grasp. Because if we understand who we are in Jesus, that he has called us to follow him, and though it may come with a cost professionally, though it may come with a cost personally, though it may come with a cost publicly, if we will be willing to count the cost, to pay the price, to follow Jesus, because we understand who we are called to be, then, then we can make an impact in this world as followers of Christ. So the disciples counted the cost. Third, we see that the call of Christ requires that you win the lost. So here it is, again, stated simply, these three points. The call to Christ required that they leave their post, that is, they they turn aside from the life that they knew and and they give everything to follow Jesus. Secondly, that they would count the cost, that they would understand the cost and more than that, be willing to pay the price to follow him. And third, that they would understand that their call ultimately is to win the lost. The call of the disciples was not to build an earthly kingdom. The call of the disciples was not to make a bunch of money and, and, and really show everybody of how good life can be if you follow Jesus. The call of the disciples was not to build big buildings, big giant cathedrals with beautiful stained glass and this, you know, uh, th- this beautiful architecture. The call of the disciples was not to write books and, and build a world of academia call of the disciples was not to gain a political platform. The call of the disciples was to follow Jesus and ultimately was to win the lost. Notice what Jesus said in chapter 2 when, when they, essentially when they said, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When I was growing up, my pastor would say to our church, often, he would say, this church isn't a museum for the saints, it's a hospital for sinners, right? And that that was embedded in the DNA of who we were as a a church. And, And I don't say it that way to our church, Really, but 
all the time I feel like I'm championing this idea, this message over and over again and again, week after week, that our purpose, that our our driving motivation in this life, that our main task as believers of Jesus is to reach the world around us with the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because the gospel changes everything. It should change everything for us. And then if it, if it has, because we've trusted in Jesus, then now we are tasked with the mission of taking that message to others so that they might believe and everything might be changed for them as well. We're called to win the loss. Jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 14. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 14. I've already pointed out that he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. But then look at what the next part of this verse says. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, we've skipped over some some passages of Scripture here because we're going to we wanted to tie together, I wanted to tie together this thread of following Jesus in these early chapters of Mark. And what we'll go back as we finish out chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 and even chapter 3 is that we'll see that what Jesus was doing, the ministry that Jesus was doing was this. He was going out to preach and he was healing people with authority over demons. So essentially this is what Jesus has done. He has called the disciples to himself so that they might count the cost to follow him. And now he has given them the purpose, the mission, to go and do the very same things that he was doing. And that's what a disciple does, right? The disciple follows the master. The disciple follows the one who's discipling them. That's, it. that's in the very idea of what it means to be a disciple. You learn from someone and you follow their example. And that's exactly what Jesus has done with his disciples here. He called them to be with him. Their identity is found in him, and then they are to go out and to preach and have authority over things in this world. So they're to do the very same things that he was doing. Philippians chapter 2, this is what we read, that if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Paul writes, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are to adopt the very mindset of Christ, which is put others first, serve their needs, reach the lost, win them with the hope of Jesus. That is the purpose of a disciple, win the lost. By whatever means necessary, understanding that it will count us, I mean, rather, it will cost us. It will cost us professionally, it will cost us personally, it will cost us publicly, but we should be willing to pay the price. But sadly, too many today, when it, when it gets to this point where, where it begins to be tough, when it begins to be costly, when it begins to be difficult, this is where too many Christians, they just fizzle out. And they may not walk away from their faith in Christ. They may not abandon the, the Christian faith and say, well, that, you know, no more do I believe, right? But, but essentially, they just check out. Well, and I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. I'm 
things would get weird in our, in our relationship or, you know, I, you know, it, I, I don't know. It, I'm not sure that I'm the right person. I don't know what I would say and I don't know what I would do. Right? I mean, when, when, when the going gets tough, when it really gets to this point where, where the pressure is on and we're facing those moments, too many Christians just simply do nothing. But the disciples, they did what Jesus was doing. They, they were sent out to preach and they exercised authority over things in this world. And that is we are called to do as well. To preach, now, I don't necessarily mean on a, on a platform like this, right? I'm not saying that everyone in this room is called to do what I do, but that word preach is really the word proclaim. That's, it's the same word in the language, in the original language. And every one of us can proclaim the goodness of Jesus. You may not preach a sermon like this, but your life is preaching a sermon every day. I guarantee it. And we're called to proclaim Christ with the things we do and importantly with the, the words that we say so that the world would see Jesus in us. The call of Christ requires that we leave our post, we turn back from the old way of living, that we count the cost, that we'd be willing to pay the price, and that we win the lost, that we proclaim the goodness of Jesus with everything, because it's who we are, not just what we do, right? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a call to respond. And in that moment of invitation today, if you're here and you recognize that there's never really been that, that moment in your life that I spoke of earlier, that, that life-defining, life-altering, reality-forming moment, where your identity became wrapped up in Jesus and his death and his resurrection for you by faith, trusting in him. And friend, today, I hope that you would surrender your life to him. In our invitation, we stand and we sing a song. And as the song is singing, some of our staff will be here at the front. And that's your moment. If you want to surrender your life to Jesus today, you can just come to one of us and say, I'm ready to, I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to answer that call. And we would love to walk you through just a simple prayer of faith, surrendering your life to Jesus, essentially saying this, God, I admit that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. And now I confess you as Lord, Savior, and Lord of my life. And if you're ready to do that today, then I, I would encourage you that you would come during our invitation. Maybe you're here today and you've made that decision before. You've, you know you've trusted Christ as your Savior. But when, when I talk about people who just kind of check out, when I talk about people who just do nothing, maybe that, really, maybe that really hits you because you would say, you know what, that's me. When I'm just kind of here, just kind of existing, not really making a difference, just, then can I tell you that the first step for you, the first step is to acknowledge before God that you are not doing everything that you should. And just simply say to him, Lord, I want to make myself available to you. I don't even know how that may work. I don't even know all that that may require of me. But as you begin to unfold that, as you begin to show me what that looks like, God, I just want to say I'm, I want to be available to you. I want to be yours. I want to do what you tell me to do. 
just like the disciples did what and I promise you that if you will if you will make yourself available to God he will begin to work in your life I have no doubt because his desire is to do essentially for you what he said he would do for the disciples. That was, I want to make you fishers of men. In other words, I want to get in the middle of your life and I want to change everything about who you are so that now who you are and what you do is centered on me and everything that comes out of that is for my kingdom and my glory. That's what he said. That's, of course, not the exact words that he used, but that's the heartbeat of what he says to the disciples. I want to make you, instead of being fishermen, I want to make you fishers of men. And that's what he's going to do in your life. And no doubt it's going to look different from you than it might look for someone else. But if you would be willing to make yourself available to God, I promise you, if you're sincere, he will begin to work and he will show you what steps to take. Would you be willing today to surrender yourself to him? I want to invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. There's no magic in this prayer, right? I'm not saying some magic words here to set up the invitation. This is just all about us taking the opportunity again to center ourselves so that our focus is on Jesus, that we might respond now in obedience to his word. God, would you move in our hearts? We want our identity to be found in you, not in, not in our, our past, not in the things we've done, not even in the things that we do for you, but in you, Jesus. And may everything else flow from that. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never trusted in you, I pray that just that your spirit would be speaking to them now and that you would be prompting them to respond by faith. And Lord, for those who are here who recognize that they've just kind of been idle, they've been stuck in neutral. Again, Lord, by the work of your Holy Spirit, stir their heart that they would be willing to make themselves available to you, to be, to be yours in your hands, usable for you and for your kingdom, God, as you do your work in their life. So, Lord, move now. Holy Spirit, reign in our hearts as we surrender our lives to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.